Previously on Pop Culture Affidavit. 94 really was a big year for Image. And it's funny you should mention that. In and of themselves. DC really coming in at the end of that decade. And Um, and now, Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 27, 1994, The Year in Comics, part 2. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this is episode number 27 and part 2 of 1994, The Year in Comics, which I have been co-hosting with Michael Bailey of Views from the Longbox from Crisis to Crisis and Tales of the Justice Society of America fame. Uh, When we last left us, we were talking about how the comics industry was kind of collapsing in on itself in 1994, and we're going to pick up with, with that and go with it and eventually get into our discussion of the specific comics of 94 as well as our favorites. So without further ado, here's me and Mike. Yeah. You had the publishers kicking out, pumping out material like there's like there's no tomorrow. You know, it's kind of like the, the you know like in Germany, right? You know, during the Great Depression when there were it, like wheelbarrows full printing of, money, <laughs> you know, printing money and wheelbarrows full of cash to get one loaf of bread. And you had these shops that were ordering this stuff in the hopes that okay, this next thing, yeah, this is what's going to catch on. This is what's going to save us. You know, it's not all this. It's not all this product I have in the back room that's never going to sell. No, it's going to be Battlestone Number Two. That's what's going to save me. And it just didn't happen. Is this where I insert the Andy Leyland American Comics hot bit that I keep doing yeah. over in the Nom Podcast? Yeah. If you want to, hot, blisteringly hot. Blazing hot. So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. But and, and the funny thing was is that if you look at all this stuff, <coughs> it all looks the same. And after Zero Hour, DC spent about a year in the nineties. And if you look at it's like when I when I covered Underworld Unleashed over in Views from the Longbox yeah. and I read all the crossovers because I have them all because I'm insane. Uh it was amazing to see all of the books that had gotten on the image bandwagon three years after that was relevant. Yeah. And I was just like, no wonder this industry almost died. Because <laughs> when you're 18, 19 years old, everything's a party. You know, you're going to the shop because you really want comics. You're not looking at it from a cultural standpoint. And you're not even looking at it from... You know, whether or not it's creatively interesting, you're just buying the books you like to buy, and everyone's really excited. 
And 94 was, again, one of the last years where everyone was really excited. It was 95 where things, where I think the, the, the Great Depression, so to speak, really hit. And, uh, you know, pretty much stayed that way. And it really hasn't recovered, sadly enough, 20 years later. No, it's, it's numbers-wise, it hasn't creatively. Um, I think that, I think that on some level, the diversification of the industry has definitely um, taken hold that you have, you have now you have the big two, obviously, but now you have a sort of B B level of image, dark horse, boom studios, um, IDW, like you have companies that wouldn't have been around or wouldn't have been as, as sustainable 20 years ago. And, you know, you have a real diverse superhero and non-superhero and movie license tie-in and, and all this sort of stuff out there that, that I don't think we would have gotten 20 years ago as much because it wasn't, wouldn't have been selling a million copies, you know, or hundreds of thousands of copies, you know, um, one of my, one of my favorite books right now, as I mentioned Terry Moore earlier, um, I've, I've been reading Rachel rising and trade and it's freaking good, but, if he pitched that to DC, they may have put it in vertigo. And if it didn't sell well enough, they would have canceled it within a year, you know? And I think so. So the, the downturn of the market and as much suffering as that has been, had has been kind of good creatively, even though I would do wish it would do better, especially since the movie receipts are not trickling down to the comic stores and we can have a whole, I mean, you've had conversations about that over on um, views and, and, mm-hmm. and in comics monthly Monday and stuff like that. But, uh, but you know, you're right. Looking at, looking at a lot of what was out and I'm just on the general page of comics from all publishers and Mike's amazing world here. And, and thank you, Mike, for creating this site because <laughs> Mike foils, because this is like, the reference site for both of us right now. Yes. They, half of these books do look the same. And, and you know, um, it's hard to tell Cyber Force from Youngblood from, from um, some of these other ones. Now, you do have indie books that would actually get a little bit more attention than, than you'd expect because I'm looking at April and I'm seeing Barb Wire, number one. And I think that movie would come out in about a year and we, you actually had a couple of comic book movies in 94, although they were indie-based because you had The Crow and you had The Mask. And I don't remember if The Shadow and the Phantom came out in 94, if they were other. Shadow came out in 94, sir. I remember okay. vividly, uh, vividly watching uh, watching that. Yeah. Uh, Underrated the movie. Theaters. Actually, that was the night I went from watching The Shadow, I dropped off my girlfriend, I went by the bookstore and got the Dirk Mag's Nightfall BBC production. Ah. But, so, moving on from the industry, let's talk about what was out. Because there was a lot of, there was a lot of crap, but there's always a lot of crap. Flip through your average issue of previews, and for every good bit that you've got where you have um something like an earth 2 which i've been enjoying i i've i'm a little more lukewarm right now to brian azarella's wonder woman but i have been enjoying that consistently or or some of the other stuff that's coming out like whether ed burbaker's doing or whatever but you also got like you know 
Jim Balint still doing tarot and somebody out there still doing Lady Death and um there's the Grimm's fairy tales and like if you look at some of the back the the back end of preview stuff, it's like this shit's still there. It's just not as prevalent in, you know, every single comic that you're seeing. But there was some really good stuff coming out at this time. Um you've obviously been focusing on Superman and another podcast and we don't have to get into the to the big thing in that and we'll talk a little bit about Zero Hour. Um you know I think of stuff like Mark Wade on The Flash and James Robinson starting Starman and, and, and some of the things that were coming out that showed that there was a light at the end of the tunnel with all of this crazy wizard hype and overordering and things like that, that there was some stuff that was really, really solid quality that would eventually get its, get its due. Um, what do you remember picking up back um, in 94? Because obviously I was buying Batman. <laughs> I mean that goes without saying. <laughs> I picked up uh I picked up some some of the milestone books like I said with the Worlds Collide mm-hmm. crossover. I also saw um I also started reading the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. After mm-hmm. Zero Hour, I was a regular buyer of Green Lantern, Flash, uh the Batman books, the Superman books. And that was pretty much what I was consuming. And, you know, since then I've gone back and read a bunch of other stuff yeah. from this time period, like the Power of Shazam graphic novel. Uh, what also I, I, I discovered in the fall of 1994 uh, was this little shop uh, in Allentown that in the back of the shop they sold CDs. And it wasn't CDs you could find any, in a lot of other places. It was a really kind of indie CD store uh, where my friends found cds they'd been looking for years for and there it was suddenly was front of the store was nothing but comics not only like single issues this place was tore up from the floor up with trade paper bags wow so that's where i got the nightfall trades that summer Uh over that fall and i got emerald twilight which is why i can say i read emerald twilight 94 even though i didn't read green lantern number 50 proper so i read that's I read it too. I just borrowed it from somebody. I don't think I actually spent money on it. So that's where I, you know, got to read uh, Nightfall all up, up, up until Night's Quest, basically. Mm-hmm. And that summer, also at a one-day show, I bought most of Night Quest uh, from the dollar boxes. Yes, yeah. overordering was <laughs> overordering has often been my friend. So it's... I remember reading all that stuff. But it really was the the latter half of that year, and on Friday I'd get paid from whatever job I was working at at the time. I'd go to the comic shop, I'd go home, and read my stack of comics, and it was just such a such a warm feeling inside. Still thinking about that, I, I kind of miss that, but at the same time I don't, because uh, mm-hmm. frankly I have enough to read right now. Uh, but what do you? Uh, what did you read at the time? I'm I'm flipping through this. I obviously was picking up a Batman, and I was still hanging on to the New Titans and Team Titans, which would die out uh, as a result of Zero Hour, um, because I was I was a huge fan of both of those titles. And then I'm looking at what else, and um, I kind of like you got into had been picking up the random issue of the flash but i remember from the time 
impulse shows up right before zero hour. And this was the other thing. I knew zero hour was coming and I was really excited for it because I remember seeing um, a DC universe, that DC universe back page that was appearing. That would be, it would be the DC hype page. It had replaced the meanwhile and Johnny DC and all that stuff. And there was a, um, it was a, this was maybe back a year and a half before it. And it was, it was a red clock. It's a zero hour. The end is near. Yes. And I went, I went, oh, I remember calling my friend. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And so I would get previews every month because I had a pull list and part of the pull list being a member of the amazing comics club. And I, funny thing was I was cleaning out a drawer the other day because we're getting ready to sell our house and, we got new nightstands so that the, you know, so that the nightstand from my childhood bedroom wasn't in the room anymore, and I found my Amazing Comics Club member card. Um, so I got free previews and like a ten percent discount on back issues, and I would I was searching the solicits every month to see like okay what should I pick up because it's going to tie into Zero Hour down the line because they weren't it's not like the lead into Infinite Crisis where they had like you know four or five miniseries and it was like three months to infinite crisis two months to infinite crisis and that sort of stuff it was like the lead into zero hour like you kind of had to read between the lines of some of these solicits and see this is going to be big this is going to be big and the flash stuff seemed like it tied in and i i read mark wade's flash run until about 97 and i was trying earlier tonight to figure out why i dropped it and i think it was purely financial because I looked at around the last issue I had, and I looked at what I bought, and I was buying like three books. I was like, I must have run out of money at some point. Um, so it was the Flash. I picked up the occasional Green Lantern, um, and stuff that tied into like Aliens and Predator and Star Wars every once in a while. But the, the Batman, uh, Deathstroke, Robin, Night when Nightwing would eventually come out, and I think that was a couple years down the line anyway. But um, Batman, Robin. Um, I was in and out of the Superman books. Um, I had stayed on past the death and return for a little while, and then that slowly tapered off for me. Um, but I wasn't buying anything by Marvel at this point. Um, although the clones had sounded interesting, I I didn't want to. I did. I don't think I wanted to invest in it. And then eventually, I was like, "Well, I'm glad because I think that ran way too long, from what I understand." Um, and but yeah, I'm just looking at this, and for some reason, I'm the first issue of Beavis and Butthead. I don't know why. It's it's Butthead getting a dental examination with Beavis going scrape in the jaw, scrape in the jaw. I I don't know why I bought this. I had it. I sold it on eBay years ago. I but <laughs> I'll make mistakes sometimes, I guess. But yeah, it was. Um, but like I said, with me. This year for me is me becoming more discerning in terms of what I want to read and what sounds interesting. In some cases, I'd pick up something that was completely independent of superheroes and read it for a little bit and then put it away and be like, no, I don't want to read this anymore. I remember being pretty into the Elseworlds. I have that Batman one where it becomes Green Lantern. Um, I'm so sorry. In Blackest Night, I think it's called. It's sitting uh, on the shelf in, over in, here. I'd, in darkest, in, uh, in darkest, darkest night. It's it's pretty. The artwork's beautiful. The story is terrible. <laughs> but yeah, even the artwork's kind of crappy in places yeah. too. We, uh, but uh, yeah. I'm I'm biased against that. 
So. No, that's no, okay. And, and actually, what I'm looking because I grabbed a couple of trades off my shelf just to look at stuff that I, I remember from '94. And um, right before the movie came out, they actually put out because it says now a major motion picture, a collection of James O'Barr's The Crow, and I bought that, um, which is. That was a big movie to go to yeah. that Friday night. I, I remember being there with all my friends. Yeah. I have not read that in 20 years almost. I it's think hard I it to twice. read. Yes. I mean, if, a, if, you, if you came from the movie to read that comic, yeah. it's almost like you had to learn another language to understand the story. Yeah. Even though, because so much was changed uh, for to make it a palatable Hollywood piece. Instead of, you know, James O'Barr working through a tragedy in Mm -hmm. comic book form. Yeah. And I knew nothing of the background of it. The only reason I saw the the two things that brought me to the movie were, one, the story behind the making of the movie, which I think could not be ignored by the time the movie came out. Nope, not at all. And the Stone Temple Pilots song in the trailer. (laughs) Because it was, it was, it was, I was a fan of the group. (laughs) And, and and to cross over to other pop culture of of the '90s, the Crow soundtrack, yes, was something that kind of came out of nowhere. They threw all these kind of alternative rock things together, and that mm-hmm. terrible "Can't Rain All the Time" song, which I never really liked. Yeah. And then a couple years later, they tried to redo that with the sequel, and it just flopped. <laughs> On just about every level, because you can't force something yeah. like that. There, it's like the single soundtrack. Yes. Um, which everybody just about has, although they, in fact, of all things, Reality Bites kind of does that, and it kind it, it it's re-listening to that soundtrack to do the episode that I just did was like it's half of a good album. Whereas Singles is a pretty consistently good album, but Reality Bites is like, you know, you've got stuff that's way more pop in these kind of college bands, and you're just like, it's not as good as I remember it, yet everybody has the damn album. Empire Records was another movie that... Empire Records tanked the box office, but on the strength of, like, the Gin Blossom song, people bought that album like crazy. And But The Crow is one of those... And, and then that became one of those movies that you rented with all your friends constantly and I have it became a part of you and then you watch it years later and you're like, you know, I really I really identify with Anthony LaPaglia in this film now. I, I kinda feel bad for him because he's just trying to hold it. He's he has got a job and this is how he makes his money. This is how he pays his rent. He's got all these stupid kids that work for them and they think they're they think their lives are so important. You have the one girl that's overly dramatic shaving her head for seemingly no reason. You have another girl fucking a pop star in the back room while the other drug addict girl is having it. And it's just like, but you like have no time for these people. But anymore. it's, but it's Rex Manning day. <laughs> and then I you think about who movie. those people are now. I mean, seriously, what's her name? Who shaved her head became Robin something Tunney. there. For, Robin Tunney she's came out. On, you know, um, she, she, she's on something. She's on a television show. She's on like... Uh, screw Ben Affleck in Hollywoodland. She yeah. Was, she, she was Lenore Lemon in that film. She is on... Like Criminal Minds or one of those shows on CBS. She's on one of those shows. And Liv then you have Tyler and... 
and Renee Zellweger and yep. Ethan Embry when he was something for about 20 minutes there before he got all roided out. You don't recognize him anymore. No, no. Uh, so, and, and, and the, the guy that, uh, played the dude that got chained to the, Oh, um, my, to the couch all day. My name's was, not, had, my name's a fucking Warren. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he was something there for about five minutes as well. So it's well, God love him, but still, yeah, no. <laughs> and that's one of those movies like Mall Rats, where you know the movie's not particularly great, but that's the fun of it. Yeah, um, because like Mall Rats, it's not a good movie, but I will watch that anytime. Way more than say Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I can't watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back anymore. I don't know. Why. <laughs> There's some good stuff. You, in you there. don't want to see. You don't want to see Joe Quesada fucking Elijah Dushku. I mean, that's no, one thing. I mean, and I also sure. don't want to like. I, I, I maybe I it was on cable. I don't like. This goes back a couple of months. It was on cable, and I might have come in at the wrong scene because I came in on the scene where they actually pull off the robbery and Ali Barter farts in the middle of it, and I'm like. This isn't funny. And yet there's some my favorite scene in the movie is the one with um where they're on the set of Goodwill Hunting 2. Yes. That's the best part of the season. film. It, that's that's Anything with parent. Ben Affleck in that film yeah. is brilliant. Yeah. From him being holding in the beginning and yes. just walking through that scene and owning every inch of it yeah. to him and Matt Damon just mugging to the camera. Yeah. Uh in in Goodwill it's, it's hunting season. <laughs> and the fact that they got the guy that played the jackass yeah. in the bar to come back. But you, you, you know why I think I also like the hunting season scene? Because he's like, he pulls out the shotgun, it's hunting season. Because it for me, it reminded me of Gandhi 2 from UHF. <laughs> no yes. more Mr. Passive Resistance. Next week on U62. He's back. And this time, he's mad. Gandhi 2. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. He's out to kick some butt. This is one bad mother you don't want to mess with. Don't move, slang boy. He's a one-man wrecking crew. But he also knows how to party. Give me a stick. Medium rare. Hey, Baldy! There is only one law. His law. Gandhi 2. Which is is another movie that I could do an entire episode on, which is an underrated movie if i've ever heard one but anyway we're 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 off on we're, a tangent we're tangenting because <laughs> yes. we're because we're getting true. to that point where we're we're so engorged on pop culture that we're we're talking about everything so we we might we might as well get to our top yes. five list so yeah so point. um i'm gonna put i'm gonna put a commercial break in here i'm gonna i'm gonna play a trailer probably for one of your shows and um and when we get back mike and i are both gonna do our top five comic series what have you of 1994. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, 
I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we're back. So, um,. I'll let you go. I guess we'll we'll do it kind of the way they do it over been uh, over at Comics Monthly on Monday. We're all just you, you can go first. You can go ahead and give me your your five. Well, it, and, it it's it's an interesting list because yeah. I I held myself to the books that I read that year mm-hmm. uh, because I've gone back and read more of 1994 in hindsight than I was reading at the time. So As I have figured, I. So I figured. Think back since it's. It's it's been a really emotional year because it's been twenty years since I've graduated from high school, mm-hmm. and it's not that I'm having a midlife <coughs> crisis. It's just I realize it's been twenty years since I graduated high school. Yeah. But so thinking about this actually got me a little. It's not like I was sitting there at work today, you know, on the ground sobbing to death because I, I'm just not that type of guy. Uh, but um, but it but when I was thinking about this, I really did get get a little get a little choked up, like in in, in the the remembrances of all the the kind of cool stuff I read number five and my list is going to be the list. People are going to go, what the hell is wrong with you? Uh, number five, Superman doomsday hunter prey. It is impossible to really articulate how important that series was to me when I was 18, because this was the origin of doomsday. This was something that we had been, uh, that I've been wondering since 1992 and now they were paying it off in a big prestige format series. Uh, the story itself has problems because it does the thing that comics are really bad about is that if you have a big bad guy and you want to prove what a badass they are, uh, you have them take down somebody big. And Doomsday owning Darkseid doesn't work for me as well as it did the first time I read it. But having said that, it gave us that really cool Superman costume that eventually got turned into an action figure. So, mm. yeah, I so, came to that one later. I, I didn't buy it when it first came out for some reason, but I did read it later, and I, I kind of agree with you there. I, I read the first issue on uh, 
school trip to Washington, D.C. That was one of the books I took with me. <clears throat> Number four, Worlds Collide, which mm. was the previously mentioned D.C. milestone event, simply because it introduced me to this whole other universe of characters. And it was startling. It really was. Because in the DC books, in Superman, Metropolis had just been decimated. And they were kind of dealing with that. But in the Milestone books, when they kind of showed what was going on in the DC universe through the Milestone filter, Mm -hmm. it was a little rapey. Um, not, not in like an explicit showing it happen, but showing it almost happen. And I remember being disturbed by that at 18. Could the milestone books, were they code approved or could they? No, they, they were, they were a little more adult. All right, they, were, so... they were more mature. Let me put it to you that okay. way. And they were mature in the right way. Not in the, Ooh, I'm 15 and boobies. Yeah. So, um, number three, it's a tie between uh, Ron Mars on Green Lantern with Kyle Rayner and Mark Wade with Wally West. Mm -hmm. Those books became so important to me over the next couple of years that it's hard to... Again, it's one of those things that it's kind of hard to talk about because it is so personal to you. Yeah. Especially the next year in 95... Uh, when things were going really bad for me and my outlet mm-hmm. was reading my comics, <clears throat> you know, Kyle and Wally were, I don't want to say they're my friends because one, that sounds kind of pathetic. And two, it's not quite true because I had friends that I hung out with, but they were my, cons- they were my consistent escape and they were the ones that I kind of related to more. It's really weird. I related to them because they were a little older than me and I related mm-hmm. to Tim Drake because he was just like a year or two younger than me. Yeah. Well, so com- Comics in that way are like your favorite TV show. Yeah, that that you you would sit down and watch. And I'm just going to come up with contemporary, you know, examples there: Seinfeld or Friends or The Simpsons or even ER. And and with with something like Friends, say what you will about it, you identified on some level with some of those characters. You liked some over the other. Or you rooted for certain ones. And it's you're right. It's the same way with comic books for, for people like us who have been comic fans for so long. It might, we might as well be fans of a television show. So, And to be fair, the uh, summer of 95, I didn't have TV. Mm-hmm. So comics were my entertainment. At yeah. <laughs> so, um, number two, Prodigal. And I, I know you have interesting feelings on this book uh story because yeah. you were kind of at the you were at the end of your journey almost mm. uh and i was just starting mine so coming in <clears throat> on that and coming in with you know prodigal is where i love to learn l- learn to love tim drake as a character because the best issues to me of prodigal are the robin issues uh that's I, I like is so solid with Chuck Dixon writing. Yeah, I mean, and, and just Chuck Dixon, you know, you joked before that you dropped everything but Detective and and Robin. For a long time there, yeah. uh, during No Man's Land especially, I wasn't reading any of the Batman books, but I was still reading Robin and Nightwing. That was, a, I, that was the same thing with me. I, I think I picked up the occasional, de- I was thinking I was reading Detective, um, but I wasn't following No Man's Land overall. Partially because I couldn't, I just I didn't have the money, um, but but yeah, and I didn't have I didn't drop Batman 
altogether until about War Games. Um, but so. but Prodigal had the one moment. The one moment that will always stick out of me in that story is the issue where the guys at the movie theater give Tim a hard time and kind of beat him up, and then mm-hmm. later in the issue, you have that. And I don't know if it's a two-page spread. In my head, it's a two-page spread because I haven't read it in a while. Of his opening move was to drive his knee into one of this guy's crotches. And I'm just like, this guy went to France and learned how to kick ass from the best and the brightest. He's, you know, he trained with Lady Shiva. He's trained with Batman. He's trained with uh, that ex-DEA agent and all that. This guy has learned how to put the hurt on by everyone in the world. And his opening move is, I'm just going to knee you in the balls. <laughs> and we're going to see how that goes for you. Whatever so, works. Because it was one of those moments where Chuck Dixon tapped into that, and you could call it an adolescent male power fantasy, mm-hmm. but it's that one, you know, he tapped into that Spider-Man moment yes. where it was where you want, you wanted to be that. You wanted to be the guy that when the, 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 the toughs messed with you, that you could just take them out. Even though it's not morally right, even though it could get you in a lot of legal trouble, you know, at that moment in time, it doesn't matter. And I think Prodigal yeah. is where I learned to love that character. Yeah, there's a moment in um, one of the episodes of the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, which is phenomenal, and I love it. Yes. Where he wants to, like... He's kind of showing off, and then he kind of in the middle of, of I think they're throwing water balloons or whatever at him. He's dodging them, and he kind of realizes that if I if I let my if I win, it's not going to be good for my secret identity. So I actually have to be the loser. And he lets because you know that there are times when he wants to just do the kick to the groin and and punch across the face to Flash Thompson, and. Tim kind of goes, that's one of the strengths of Tim's book is that he, you know, he's dealing with the same sort of stuff. Like this kid can, you know, kill you five times before you actually get a shot in. Yet he's got to let himself, you know, back off a little bit. I think Dick Grayson had to do a little bit of that too, but not to the extent that Tim Drake did. And Dixon was able to layer his stories with a with a supporting cast that was just amazing as well so i I think that's another reason why i fell in love with those books number one and this is going to sound weird because you might think zero hour but i'm actually going to say zero month okay and the reason why i'm going to say zero month is because zero hour as a story because of the rushed nature of how it came out it's kind of a mixed bag it's not Mm -hmm. terrible it's not genesis from 97 (sighs) But I've you know, that it's, out. It, it's it's not as good as some of the other crossovers. But Zero Month was where DC said, "Okay, either we're going to tell you the new origin, we're going to tell you the updated origin, or we're just going to give you this great jumping on point." Mm-hmm. And I remember a little later that summer, uh, right before I went into school officially, that you know that that August, yes. My uh, the guy Stan that that co-owned the comic shop I went to that I became pretty good friends with actually uh, handed me this video <coughs> that DC sent out to comic shops and a lot of comic shops had VCRs and it was basically a promotional video for Zero Hour and Zero Month Ooh. where 
you had this BS kind of parallax hosting it, but it went it interviewed every single DC editor and he talked about what was coming up in his books. So you like had like a little thing on Impulse from Brian Augustine and a little thing with Ray from Brian Augustine and Paul <coughs> Kupperberg and Eddie Berganza and Frank Pitarisi and all these mm-hmm. people that were just names in the comic for me, but suddenly there they were and they were real people. And I still have that. And at some point I'm going to spend the money and I'm going to get the little thing that can go from my VCR to the computer and I'm going to digitize it and I'm going to put it on YouTube because yeah. I can't find it. Did did you uh, did you have the Wizard Zero Month? Oh, of course special? I did. Because I yes. had that, and I, I, that was I also had that the, was cool. I also had came out the same year. Wizard the Dark Book. Hmm. It explored the villains of comic ah, books. That's pretty cool. Had a carnage on the cover, but that but that's my five. Uh, we'll, Zero we'll, Month it was just an amazing time for DC. We'll probably get back to that because that's on my list too. Um. Neither of us mentions the Clone Saga because <laughs> I think the Clone Saga Spider-Man starts by the end. Yeah, neither was I. Um, all right, so I had before before I get to five, I do have to give an honorable mention. Not not that this book was any good or bad or whatever, but at the very beginning of the year, a miniseries called Star Wars: Tales of the Jedi comes out. This is Dark Horse's first expanded universe miniseries that does not involve the core cast of characters from the Star Wars trilogy. It's oh. it's at the end of Dark Empire, Leia gets the Jedi holocron or whatever. It's that it's basically like a big magic eight ball time capsule that's telling her the history of the Jedi. And in the back of the trade, because I have the trade paperback that came out ninety ninety three or so, um, there's this whole text piece which I've read once and I was trying to reread it after I read Dark Empire a couple of years ago and it's very tough to get through but it's this whole history of the Jedi going all the way back to the ancient 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 Jedi and it's and that's what Tales of the Jedi kind of starts with it's this hundreds of thousands of years ago the the beginning of the you know not the beginning of the Jedi order but like kind of the ancient Jedi order the rise of the Sith and it would go through several mini series of which I fell off that for after about a year or two of collecting them and I don't remember if they were any good but I think it's just worth noting that this is where Dark Horse started its expanded universe of Star Wars beyond just the trilogy because all the novels at this point were all the trilogy as well were all Luke and Leia and Han and and all that, but but Dark Horse started back in 1994, and I don't remember the name of the character uh, or characters that they were they were telling stories about. But I think that's worth at least some mention. My number five is um, this is going to seem weird, but there's a reason for it. Um, it's Spawn Batman, <laughs> of which there were two. There were two crossovers: yes. Spawn, Spawn and Batman. There was. Um, there was Spawn Batman, and there was Batman Spawn War Devil. Batman Spawn War Devil was put out by DC. I'm looking at it right now. It has Doug Mensch, Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant were the writers, and Klaus Janssen was the art. And the art is meh. Uh, the premise behind this one is that a, an ancient demon named Croatoan, who was responsible for the slaughter of colonists on Roanoke Island before the Jamestown colony, uh, is still haunting Gotham or something, and they team up to fight it. I haven't read it in like twenty years. Maybe I'll maybe I'll throw it. Out, I'll do a blog post about it. Um, I remember at the time actually liking that more than the other one. Now, Bat- Spawn Batman was hyped. 
Yes. To the point where it was Wizard issue 29 or 31 or something. And um, it, it had the, in the back of Spawn Batman, it had the pinup of Batman and Spawn by uh, Frank Miller and Todd McFarlane. And Wizard put that on their cover to the point where it was so important to them that they took the Wizard logo and the issue number, I was thinking it was 32, it was the one right before the Catwoman issue, and they put it in the bottom right-hand corner. So the entire cover is the pinup. There's no like big Wizard magazine logo or anything. It's like, you're going to buy this issue because Spawn and Batman are on the cover. And to this day, and I've read this maybe twice or three times, Frank Miller writes it, Todd McFarlane draws it, certainly very pretty. I have no idea what the hell is going on in this issue. It shipped late, too. That was the other thing. And I remember this finally came out, and I read it. And of course I'm like, it did. <laughs> and and it, it shipped majorly late. It was hyped to holy hell. And there's all this stuff, and I'm flipping through it, and I don't know what the heck happened in it. And which is not usually the case with me and, like, in, in some of these hyped-up crossovers. Like, there are some that I find that are pretty bad, and then there are, like, this, and there are some that I find pretty good, like, the following year, I think ninety five or ninety six would be Superman Aliens, which I love, absolutely love. Yes. And then um, there was a Batman Planetary one. Oh uh, yeah, that was uh, an that's excellent good. crossover. This is this this and the reason I put this on this list is that this was one of those sort of <laughs> the bridge too far when it came to image for me, where I was like. I'm buying this because I'm buying it because Batman's in it and because I also read Spawn, but I'm also buying it because basically people are telling me I should buy it. And I'm like, why am I spending five bucks on this when it's not that good? You know? So that was, that was my number five. Um, and like I said, 20 years later, I still have, maybe one day I'll reread it and I'll be like, maybe I understand kind of what's going on, but it was, I just don't remember it being very good at all. And Frank Miller, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't read in anything. Alleyway. I haven't read in the anything. rain. Yeah, in the shadows. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, darkness. No parents. <laughs> Continue darkness. <laughs> my son. I I have a playlist on my iPod of songs my son likes to listen to in the car, and one we saw the Lego Movie, and that was one of them that he just kept cracking up. So I downloaded it, and he just laughs his ass off in the car. Is that actually from the Lego movie? It is. It's um there's a point where the 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 main female character says um she's like my boyfriend's here to pick it pick us up. It's Elizabeth Banks the voice and they hop in and it's Batman. Voiced by Will Arnett and she's like and he's also a musician. He's very deep and it's him singing about <laughs> Darkness, darkness, no parents. Yeah, and there's two versions. There's one that plays during the movie, and there's one that plays over the end credits, and it's just so funny. It, it I, I'm the the hype that that movie is getting from like people, you know, saying that it's like really really smart is is pretty accurate. The movie is really funny. <laughs> awesome. It was it was worth the money, so I would I would recommend go seeing it. It's, it's very it's very well done. Um, moving on, my number four. Um, was uh, now I didn't stick to books. Um, I had to put this in there. I didn't necessarily stick to books that I uh, I read back then, but I did eventually read Starman by James Robinson. I, I did want to mention oh, yeah. that because I point to that as like one of the books where I'm like, 
this came out of the the 90s. I, I think I started reading it in like 95, 96. I just borrow, was borrowing it from friends. And I had a few issues here and there, and I'm, I've been going back and buying um, what trades I can find. So, um, and I think there's not much to say about that the book because it's just one of those books that you know you can believe the hype surrounding it and um it was one of the many good things that come out of zero hour to be honest with you interesting to read now yeah and that's all i'm going to say about that uh my number three is something that we didn't when we were talking about the books that came out that year and this is a book i actually absolutely love and that we didn't mention was marvels uh by Kurt Busaic and Alex Ross, um, which was published and then was published in trade by the end of the year too. And, um, and I, I bought the trade because in, I, I saw hype about it and I was like, Oh, this is going to be pretty good. And for whatever reason did not pick it up. And then when the trade came out in like November or December that year, I had the money and I just bought the trade and I read it. And um, I'm glad I did because I'm pretty sure a lot of people were introduced to Alex Ross through Marvels. Um, it was certainly my introduction to Kurt Busaic, or at least technically it was the first time I recognized the name, even though I had issues of like Legion of Superheroes and Valor that he'd written mm-hmm. during the time around Zero Hour because I was buying those because that Legion storyline leading into and part of Zero Hour is End really of good. Yeah, it's really good. And I'm not that much of a Legion fan, but even I was like, this is really fun. Um, but <clears throat> but I, I love – people have tried to do the ordinary citizen perspective on living in a superhero world. Um, this is one of the few that really gets it right. Mm-hmm. And I'd agree with that. And, and Because the heroes seem heroic – and the the it's dark where it has to be, and the main character is conflicted at times, but it doesn't like Mark Millar did this book called nineteen eighty five a few years ago. It was like sort of real world Marvel thing it was I got it out of the library and it it was okay, but it was just no, it was just this whole the whole idea was that well, if the Marvel heroes really existed in our world, there would be a lot more death and violence and carnage, and I'm like, I don't want us. And I'm like, and <laughs> this this shows like this this ordinary citizen perspective, the perspective of a journalist, and 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 how the world is affected by these people who are or just have extraordinary powers without tearing them down too. And I think that's what happens sometimes. Kingdom Come is a totally different animal, and I'm I was always grateful for that because Kingdom Come's not DC ripping off Marvels. It's mm-hmm. a totally different thing, and I think it, I think it worked out very well. Um, I just love how Marvels gets across the gravity of the, and no pun intended, the gravity of the death of Gwen Stacy. Oh yeah, and, and, I mean, and just yeah. things like that, where it's just you know without being too heavy-handed with it too. So, uh, my number two is something you already mentioned: Mark Wade's run on the Flash. Um, yes. I was reading Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern sporadically. Um, I was enjoying it. I was buying it sporadically. I was borrowing it from friend and, and stuff, but I didn't really get into Kyle as Green Lantern until probably about a year or two into the character. And then it really took off for me. Um, but Wade on the Flash, I started with Impulse. And like I said, I went until about 1997 when I just, I think I just dropped the book out of financial necessity. And it was just this light in. Because it never tried to be 90s, 
in in that sense. You know, like they would they would take him out, they'd bring him back, they developed the supporting, they took the supporting cast they had, they developed some more, and, and I mean, it's an amazing run. Mm-hmm. And and it was amazing, and you had this consistent artists because you had um, it started with like Greg LaRoque, I think, and then uh, you had Mike Ringo and um, Oscar Jimenez for a time, uh, some other people, and so the, the the art was great, the the writing was was phenomenal, and then he really, I mean, he he was just really really knocked it out of the park. Um, and and this was him just like at his height too, because he'd go on to do Kingdom Come, and then he would go on to JLA after Grant Morrison left and stuff. So it was I was very grateful that I got on the ground floor, almost on the ground floor. I think it was about a year late on getting on the ground floor with his with his run on the Flash. But it's it's so good. It's it's such a good example an example of the good stuff that came out of the early '90s when you're talking about quote unquote '90s comics. Mm-hmm. And my number one is Zero Hour. <laughs> I um, Because to me, this is a book that kind of encapsulated everything that could be good and bad about this era of comics. Um, I really was really excited for this book when I first heard of it. And I mentioned I saw that DC Universe house ad and I started buying what issues I could see that maybe this has something to do with zero hour. And as I got closer and closer, it became easier to, to discern. Like I started buying Legion and Legionnaires and Legion of superheroes on a regular basis. And, and then you had the actual series come out and it was a weekly series and you had all these crossovers and then you had zero month. And I bought quite a number. I didn't buy all the zero issues, but I bought quite a number of them. And was funny to me about that is that, it's this supposedly big universe changing saga. It ties into the whole Hal Jordan is parallax thing. In fact, that's where he gets the name parallax. Mm-hmm. It, it attempts to correct Armageddon 2001's ending by somehow giving Hank Hall the wherewithal to become extant. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to explain, but here's the thing. And this is, and I love, I love Dan Jurgens. He, so for the longest time to me he was the superman artist because he was i started reading superman books around when he was doing them and out of the the three who were doing them at the time um i just got attached to him more than than anybody i was like yeah this is he was my favorite superman artist but it just i don't know if he doesn't handle huge casts very well or if it was just the the nature of the of the crossover, but I think it was the nature of the crossover yeah. because he handled a huge cast of characters beautifully in Panic in the Sky, and then with the weekly nature of Zero Hour, I think he and Orway were just very rushed with that, and the writing was kind of rushed as well until the latter half of the series. I mean, you literally had exchanges like, you know. Aquaman, are you okay? I'm fine. You know, that kind of thing. So Which which may be unfair, but you know, I don't I don't think I'm being too unfair to the man. The long story short on Zero Hour is that I, I, I went in and I saw it was a weekly and in the back of my mind I, I thought of Millennium and I was like, I don't know how well this is gonna go. And 
there are the crossovers throughout Zero Hour are, are outdo the actual series. Mm-hmm. Well. Um, but the uh, the series itself is full of kind of start-stop moments, and they're fighting people in the time stream. So there's not a lot of background going on. It's 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 disheartening because I had such high hopes for it. But like for instance, the, the one moment that really disappointed me was the one with the Teen Titans, and it's not because I'm a Titans fan, but because Monarch has all of these sleeper agents, and you're hoping that there's going to be like a big fight issue, you know, and the fight between all of these Teen Titans who have now been activated because they were sleeper agents from various time streams and the actual superheroes last solve a couple of pages and it's not it, it could have been more and the same thing was like I wasn't big on, on the way they kind of the, the JSA thing and, and, and a lot of the other stuff but at the same time that's, that's kind of the bad of it but the good of it is like you said earlier the Zero Month and with the crossovers there's a lot of fun involved there, and and I think that it shows you how how disappointing some of the stuff in the '90s could be, but also how how good it could be. Because some of the Zero Hour crossovers, uh, the Superboy one, Robin one, um, which are both excellent. The Action Comics issue, I remember, which ends with Lois Lane basically speaking into her tape recorder, reporting the end of the world was one that was again was just phenomenal so there's so much that comes out of there it's the central event that I think really really um, really uh, doesn't get as much praise as it really deserves because of all the stuff that happened around it even if the central story spectacular no I, I, I agree pretty much with everything you said especially the Robin and the Superboy crossover issues were epic in every sense of the word so no good choices sir good choices um so i'm gonna so between the technical difficulties we had for the last five minutes because my computer decided to stop working with my mic and um and and the fact that it's getting a little late we've been talking for almost a good three hours here um we're gonna wrap it up um why don't you tell everybody where they can find you. Um, you can find me at Views from the Long Box, which is at viewsfromthelongbox.com. Um, I talk about all kinds of comics over there, mostly DC books, uh, a lot of Superman, a lot of Batman mixed in there. Uh, coming back pretty hardcore with that this year. Uh, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at the Superman homepage and fortressofbailey2.com. Uh, both of those... Uh, th- that show I co-host with my friend Jeffrey Taylor. We're going through the post-crisis Superman one half month at a time. If you head over to Two True Freaks, you can find me on Comics Monthly Monday and Tales of the JSA. Uh, one with Scott Gardner and the other with Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Uh, and I am also on the Spider-Man Crawl Space, which you can find at spidermancrawlspace.com. I'm on that monthly podcast as well talking about the uh, latest issues and the latest news of spider-man so uh i do too much well thanks again for coming on thanks again for uh for for talking about despite the technical difficulties that in here this was really fun oh it happens and uh, no this is a this is a ball sir yeah. thank you for letting me remember one of the best years of my life 
uh, and in many ways, one of the one of the most uh, crazy years of my life as well. And uh, love the show. Cool. Thank you. And once again, I would like to thank Mike for coming on and for all of his help in making sure that this episode uh, actually had some audio. Uh, remember, kids, when you're recording with another podcaster, both of you end up recording, so there's always a backup. And man, that saved my ass this time. Um, a little note here, next episode I'll be talking about The Crow, the Brendan Lee movie, as well as the James O'Barr comic. Um, and I do have some ideas and, and, and stuff scheduled beyond that. But if you have an idea for an episode, especially, uh, with regard to the 1994 series, if you've been listening to these, these podcast episodes, or if you've been reading the entries on the blog and been saying, oh, you should cover this or, oh, we should cover that. Send me an email, drop me a line on Facebook. Um, I may have already thought of it or I may not have, uh, you know, who knows? There's always something that I tend to miss. So. So go ahead and do that. And speaking of the blog, uh, you can find uh, more stuff from 1994 that, that wasn't covered on a podcast episode. You can take a look at um, my entries on Ken Burns' Baseball, which I did in conjunction with the Forgotten Film cast or Forgotten Film blog. And I also did a piece on Kurt Cobain's Suicide, as well as uh, more stuff on the New Titans and Deathstroke. So go over there, check that stuff out. There'll be new stuff on the blog next week, and I'll be back in a few weeks with The Crow. So until then, take care, and thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.